Welcome to episode 42 of The People on Kchung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. On this episode, our guests are Greg Curtis and Daniel Small. Greg Curtis is an artist who lives and works in Los Angeles. This past June 2016, he curated an exhibition titled In Chambers at the gallery Miss Barbers in Culver City. And in May, his solo show, Event October Horizon, was at Monta Vista Projects. Coming sort of from this this appropriation background, at a certain point I would kind of not be able to find the pictures I wanted. Um, And so I ended up more and more having to just create the pictures I wanted. But it also being a very quick kind of in-between process, it was almost just sort of like getting the camera to take the pictures so that as soon as possible I could get them onto my computer and I could start actually working with them. Daniel Small is an L.A.-based artist whose work is currently included in the Made in L.A. biennial exhibition at the UCLA Hammer Museum. It becomes a kind of uncanny experience because it's like on one level you know that it's fake, but yet the way that it's both shown and the way that in its actual affect of representation tell you something completely different and it, it just becomes something that uh, doesn't masquerade in, anymore. It just it, it is that. It is the thing. Coming up later, we'll hear a recording of two poems by Laura Glenham from a reading last year at the Poetic Research Bureau here in Los Angeles. And we'll close out this episode with music from L.A. band Forget Me Nots. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record magically repaired. You can listen to The People on K-Chung, 1630 a.m., every third Sunday at 3 p.m., or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Greg Curtis and Daniel Small, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks. Thank you. So, Greg, Curtis, you recently curated a show at Miss Barber's here in Los Angeles called In Chambers. You want to tell us about that show? Uh, yeah, the show ran mostly through the, the month of June, um, and it featured the work of Sarah Bostwick, Melissa Humphrey, Gina Osterloh, Rachel Roski, and Katie Shapiro. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the show was, you know, it was loosely sort of, it, it was loosely based around kind of the idea of, uh, of interiority and sort of interior space, um, both as that relates to the inside of a camera or camera obscura, um, also sort of the, the interior mind of the observing subject. Um, so most of the work in the, in the show sort of featured empty interiors of sorts, uh, which has been sort of a running theme in my own work. Uh, and so as an artist curating a show, it was sort of just a nice opportunity to sort of um, engage with artists in LA that, whose work I really admire and uh, sort of also create sort of a dialogue uh, with my own work. Do you think that uh, the show in some way is a kind of continuum of your work? Because, I mean, like a lot of the themes or the ideas you just talked about seem to be mirrored like um, in your show that was at uh, Monta Vista in many ways. I mean, for instance, the uh, the fact that they're all photographs that were made in camera but are non-representational to some degree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was sort of, it was a happy coincidence that the shows, uh, my solo show, Event October Horizon, happened at Monta Vista just the month before in May. So it wasn't necessarily my idea originally to have them be like in direct conversation with each other, but it was a nice thing that they both sort of happened at close to the same time. 
so in curating the show, I wasn't trying to sort of impose a specific, uh, you know, meaning on their work. Uh, but in showing it together and sort of in the way I installed it, I kind of wanted to create a larger conversation about what I'm interested in. Um, also sort of in terms of the way I installed and hung the show, um, which is very, for a lot of artist run space type group shows, it was very sort of sparse. Um, there was a lot of room in between pieces, uh, which I think is something that's, uh, it's very important to me when I view work. Um, so and, yeah. And for people who didn't make it to your solo show at Monta Vista, uh, which is a gallery here in Los Angeles, can you describe your work there? Uh, yeah, that was one very specific sort of project. I've been working um, for the past couple years um, off and on with making lens flares, uh, which essentially happen when um, light is directly entering the camera. Um, and as the light bounces around inside the lens, it sort of refracts and creates uh, shapes and various colors. So, And this is something that anybody who's ever seen uh, a big budget movie would be familiar with. It's kind of the sparkly sparkly light things that happen, right? Sure, sure. But the um, difference in yours is is that it's essentially, it all happens in camera versus it being something that's like added in post uh, where it's like CGI lens flare in or something like that, right? Sure, um, yeah. And I mean, I, I find that that's sort of the history of lens flare, you know, which runs throughout the history of photography. I find it very sort of interesting the way it's been sort of uh, either suppressed or... Um, celebrated, I guess, to some extent, um, you know, in early photography or even in just a photography kind of 101 class that you might take somewhere, you learn, one of the first things you learn is to not shoot directly into your light source and that the light, you know, should be hitting the subject that you're shooting. Um, and generally lens flare throughout most photography and cinema is something to be avoided. And if you get it in a picture, it's, you know, sort of considered a bad picture. Um, but with the advent of um, CGI and, you know, so many sequences now in movies are made without without even a camera, um, lens flare kind of has come back as this sort of stylistic feature um, that sort of lends reality to these constructed, you know, sequences or pictures. I mean, I find that to be probably the most interesting thing about that project, though, just because it, it uh, kind of inverts or subverts in some ways um this idea of authenticity of of the image and lens and lending that kind of authorship to it by the kind of artifacts that you know you get in it and it's the same thing as like um for instance yeah like like going all the way back to like you know space odyssey or something like that that it it, it adds this kind of which was in camera but but then you know undergoing this evolution where it ends up becoming uh, a kind of s sign of authenticity today, even though in most films it's actually completely, uh, you know, made up in post-production. And tell us about at, at Monta Vista, like those images are primarily black and uh, and the way that you hang them there was was very specific as well. Yes, um, I, I had shown a, a group of lens flare pictures at a weekend gallery in Los Angeles um, a couple years ago, or maybe three years ago. Um, and those I shot with the aid of uh, Adam Becker, who's a cinematographer, and uh, who, you know, he came into the studio and he had, um, you know, a, a extensive, amazing sort of camera and lens and light and gel and everything sort of collection. And and those pictures ended up being, I ended up printing them very, like, relatively large, like 30 by 40 
ish. Um, and they sort of, to me, you know, and there was a lot of sort of flourishes in them as in, I mean, they were, there wasn't any sort of representational, there wasn't any subject in the image, but they weren't also very, they weren't completely pure as lens flares. Uh, also, I found sort of when the sort of feedback I got from the show, there was sort of this, like, I found that people sort of thought the work was somehow in dialogue with painting um, because they did, because of their size and the colors and the compositions, they, they seemed to be sort of in dialogue with like color field painting or something like that. Um, so when I decided to kind of revisit making more lens flares, I really wanted to narrow my options down. Um, so I shot them myself um, with just two different lenses and just a single light source um, without changing any of the other sort of parameters of it. Um, also shooting against a black backdrop to sort of really just isolate only the lens flares. Um, and then I also printed them and framed them small-ish. You know, they were like 10 by 14 or something like that, um, which I wanted to sort of be more, instead of the way paintings <clears throat> or larger photographs are in dialogue with the with sort of the whole body or sort of waist to shoulders, I wanted them to be, to more reference just sort of the head and to be more kind of just apertures or openings for directly viewing. Um, and then I also combined them. There were 11 of those. I combined them with just... Uh, black, all black C prints to sort of create a rhythm or kind of spacing in between them. I mean, going back to the installation at uh, Monta Vista, though, I mean, that that Z bar, whatever, ran the whole perimeter mm -hmm. of the space. And so it almost made it as if, you know, that the images were somehow kind of interchangeable with one another and then interspersed with, you know, just like uh, like you just referred to, just these black frames, these kind of monochrome uh, that obviously have some some maybe tangential reference to color field painting or something but mm -hmm. um i guess i wondered about that too just in the sense that obviously there was nothing i you know there was nothing interactive about about the exhibition but but just that um it kind of lent itself in some way to like this idea that you know just the installation itself could be kind of you know interchangeable or you know it could be it it, it kind of uh fluctuated you know? Yeah, there's a sense of movement that happens there, right? Which is maybe even a, fil a filmic quality to it, I thought. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I see it as sort of a modular kind of installation. So, you know, for instance, if I were to show that, um, that body of work in another place, um, it would be different, at least, at least slightly different. Um, and having the sort of panel rail Z-bar, you know, running around the entire perimeter of the gallery, I did want to suggest a modularity or suggest that um, that their placement wasn't necessarily fixed. Um, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't inviting the audience to move them around, but I wanted there to be sort of an implication um, that they could be that they could be moved around. Yeah, the idea was there for the viewer just because of the way it was hung with the Z-bar. It's like you walk into the room and though you're not going to start just walk, you're not going to walk into a gallery and start moving pieces around. But the implication to the viewer is that it could happen. And why would you want that like feeling of potential modularity to exist in an otherwise like real still show? Um, well, I did sort of want to put it in dialogue uh, with cinema a little bit. Um, and not in that I mean, there was a little bit of a reference to it looking, you know, sort of like a film strip or something, or actually even more so um, like video editing uh, 
software maybe like you you know if you're looking at final cut pro or something you have these like and you're, you have these you have this timeline with these little sort of thumbnails um that are still pictures um and something that's really interesting to me as sort of just like the bare the bare sort of bones of cinema is this you know the idea of the persistence of vision so when you look at one picture and you look at another picture immediately after um you perceive you perceive movement um which is something that we you know i think we sort of take for granted when we watch any kind of moving picture um but actually there's like a pretty you know sophisticated cognitive process that's happening um when you perceive movement in something and it's engaging both your visual perception and also memory um so in sort of creating that and then also being hung you know on this bar i wanted to sort of really highlight you know the fact that viewing these pictures and viewing any sequence of pictures is actually um, an ideological process. So in some ways, it's almost like the it, it can be kind of framed as like montage, but it's like, it's it's as if um, there isn't really a um, there's not there's there's not necessarily a, a linearity to it. But it's like just that, you know, the spacing that you chose, that um, breaks it up in a way that uh, it seems as if there is a linearity to what the installation is. But at the same time, it kind of subverts that in the sense that uh, it 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 also kind of folds back on itself because of the because of what we talked about just a few minutes ago when mm-hmm. we were talking about like the authenticity of um, you know adding in effects and things like that that you know give it that that give that um, that kind of affect the you know the affect of representation to something. I mean, yeah, I mean, and so much of sort of what I wanted to do with that show was sort of bring everything. I mean, sort of bring maybe like a photography exhibition down to its barest kind of elements um, so that you that really all that's in the show is um, the operations of light and a camera. Um, There's no sort of object that's mediating that action. So really what you're seeing is the the mechanism of the way a camera lens um, records light Um, and then in hanging it that way. I wanted to really just sort of highlight all the sort of processes that happen when we look at all pictures. Uh, so re- yeah, so really the whole show is about that kind of that apparatus uh, for for viewing and the way that we sort of look at pictures and how sort of inundated we are with these pictures. Um, we sort we take it to be sort of natural, and you know my point is that our perception of photographic images is is far from natural. Yeah, it, it, there's there's like a supposed objectivity to it um, that implies, yeah, something more about uh, the decipherment of of real or you know uh, illusion and reality or something like that, and that it's almost like um, it's it, it it almost in some ways it, it mirrors a lot of my own interest in in my own work where it's like. Uh, it's it's not so much where you either kind of believe or you don't believe something. You always kind of conditionally believe in it because you allow yourself to be, you know, to allow that affect of representation to kind of take hold, you know. Exactly. You're listening to The People on k 1630 AM. We'll return to our conversation with Greg Curtis and Daniel Small in a few minutes. But first, a new installment of Notes from the People. In this edition of Notes from the People, we have two poems by Laura Glenham from a reading she did at the PRB, the Poetic Research Bureau, on March 27, 2015, as part of the And Now off-site readings. 
And there were many other great readers, and you can find full recordings on our SoundCloud page. Just search for The People Radio on SoundCloud. And now let's listen to Lord Glenham's poems, The Hotling First Encountered, and A List of Alleged Crimes. The Hotling First Encountered. Through honeycombs of peril, I came like a group of diseased animals sharing one fatty lung to cast mine eyes upon the hotling. In a high-toned season of vertiginous suck, I found the hotling lying in swine palace, swilling to the click of media flashbulbs. Tiny vessels in the hotling's kong posh shifted as a twitching, malignant beauty began sucking the gears out of my skyhole regalia. The hotling's pink meanie was a punk cabaret full of art damage and spuming fountains of shagoog. When I saw the hotling splayed out on the burning lawn of Swine Palace, I got all wiggers. I became a ninjette. I would have bucked and fumbled across a zillion dull horizons to do a single bloodbanger in that gobbling carnival. That spasticated monkey even entered my dreams, grinning like a sacrificial lamb. I want to smash up your boojank, I begged. I want to chip my teeth on your knob and knob gobble until I bust a chunky. <laughs> Blessed are the toothless, I groaned. Blessed are the freaking blind. The hotling was several decades my junior. Rumors persisted that it hadn't been born yet or that I was having a shameless affair with a goat-footed fetus. But the hotling was already giving me lessons in swine epidemiology with its open mouth and bone bling. People said this ganky little corpse of ore only loved the paparazzi, but I was waxing besotted over the hotling's fiery dirigibles. The hotling's think stick was already strung up among my ligaments. The news channel said I'd become a bone barnacle, hot to be exorcised by the hotling's gushing monk eye. I was and was not in a state of extreme discomfort. This was what the state media often referred to as hot diggity death crotch with cannibals on top. A list of alleged crimes. It was alleged that I was given over to Rococo excess even on the most mundane of occasions. It was alleged that I was spotted at Hotel Q with the hotling skin tied around me like a geisha robe and that I was attending secret meetings of the occult fornication club. It was alleged the hotling was a pathological fabrication and publicity stunt. It was alleged that I was a bizarre, poorly executed ad campaign jointly funded by the hotling and Marcel Duchamp. It was alleged that I was a total brat and gender illusionist. It was alleged that I was rejecting the bold and the beautiful and advocating on behalf of the gaudy and half-decayed. 
It was alleged that I said, the sentence like the body must decompose. It was alleged I was a classic melancholic who loses the object of desire while the object is still present. It was alleged that I called for the collapse of the pastoral or that my charred animals constituted some highly illegal form of pastoral. It was alleged that I marked the demise of sincerity. It was alleged that the hotling was utter kitsch and that I was a careerist hack who made loads off of institutionalized anarchy. It was alleged I was a specific brand of female paranoia. It was alleged I was ventriloquizing my cunt in a sing-song voice at state-sponsored dinners and functions. It was alleged I was one monstrous cunt. Thank you. Now let's return to our conversation with Greg Curtis and Daniel Small. So, Daniel, you were recently in a, the Made in L.A. Biennial at the Hammer Museum. Tell us about that that project that you have there. Sure. Uh, the project began in 2010. I moved to Los Angeles, and I was very interested in a site that's just north of Los Angeles um, where the remains of Cecil B. DeMille's uh, film set 1923 film set for the Ten Commandments were blown up and then later uh, buried in the sand dunes. And so anyways, it, it, it began there. And so the exhibition at the Hammer Museum consists of uh, plaster, uh, plaster artifacts from the film set, uh, along with paintings from the Luxor in Las Vegas that were excised from the walls after uh, the Egyptian Antiquities Commission passed legislation that basically copyrighted their statues, uh, temples, um, sphinxes, etc. And then those materials were then uh, accessioned into the Las Vegas Natural History Museum, which I then bought from them to include in Made in LA. And then the third component is our cultural artifacts uh, used by the cast and crew who uh, were basically everything from like laborers to uh, actors and extras, et cetera. And um, those materials are almost kind of form like this cultural time capsule of life in early 1920s America next to this Ersatz Egyptian city. So essentially the project is a kind of synthesis of all three of these uh, components. And uh, when you see the show at the Hammer, uh, there are these paintings from the Luxor that are on the walls, um, and then all these cases that are presented in a very kind of museological way that contain the artifacts from the film set. Um, and then, like I said, along with these cultural materials that were um, also found at an adjacent site where everybody lived during the filming of uh, the Ten Commandments. So one sort of question that I have um that we've never actually discussed is uh, one thing that really kind of struck me as I was walking through that uh, that exhibition um, was the fact that the walls were this this sort of blue color that was striking. Right. So the blue is a chroma key blue paint that was used at the same time in the early 1920s, uh, and it's the same kind of principle of like um, the weather or something where it's like you could take any individual and put them in any backdrop. And so I used it in the show partially uh, or mainly actually because of the fact that it 
it almost works as a kind of placeholder for everything that isn't there. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the paintings were excised from the walls of the, of the Luxor in Las Vegas. So, you know, there was that consideration, but then beyond that, it just happens to, I think, um, coincidentally work well with the fact that the paintings have this kind of yellowish gold tint to them. And so this blue that sucks all the light out of the room, um, works well with them. Yeah. Yeah. I find that really interesting. I mean, especially now because, you know, at least for me, I think, you know, when I think of chroma key, I, I go to the green screen because right. that's now the more sort of dominant color for that. And, you know, uh, several artists, you know, myself included have used that sort of color, you know, at, at to sort of point to right. those same kind of ideas. Um, but I do find it really interesting that, you know, the dominant color, you know, for that used to be that sort of blue. And I'm not, totally sure i believe they sort of changed it um to accommodate like a wider array of skin tones exactly um, yeah so yeah it was I, I mean i think at the time they thought that that color because it had some i forget it's some kind of uh metal in it that you know mm -hmm. that, that that makes it so matte you know sure and so it was at the time what they thought would be the furthest uh tone from any kind of skin tone you know you could put anybody in front of it and then of course later on green screen comes along but right. um but yeah i think that it, it the color was also i think in part just um because all these materials are either have a kind of dubious provenance or are on loan from various uh individuals there was a kind of way of taking some kind of authorship over the you know literally the walls containing everything mm -hmm. within within the show um so that was a big yeah, consideration too. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that struck me, I didn't immediately go to chroma key when I saw that color, but what I did sort of think about was how that, like painting the walls that color or almost any color really, you know, because generally in a, in a contemporary art setting, whether it's a gallery or museum, it's just, the it's always a white wall. Right. Um, uh, so it to me, it pointed also to sort of like what you see maybe like in a natural history museum or something like that. Like when you go, to those types of exhibitions, they will paint the walls, you know, a right. color. Um, or a really old, like, 18th century salon style sure. show. It'll be yeah. like a deep red or maybe a deep blue or right, something. Right, right. And I think that kind of added to the very kind of like the dry presentation right. um, that was happening with that show. Because, you know, we all want, you know, as artists, we all want people to to read the, you know, the material we provide to give them context and, and everything else. But... As we all know, you know, people just walk into these places. Right. Um, and so I find it's really interesting. There's that tension in that in that body of work that if you're not if you're not reading the material, you might think that they actually are ancient, exactly. ancient artifacts, you know. Um, right. And so I think the wall, like I think it really added to that because it really did. You sort of like in doing that, you know the color like represents a space that could be projected onto, but then it, you're also sort of appropriating the entire sort of um, system of display for like some kind of like historical institution. Completely. And, and I, I guess as another point that I'll add to that is um, it almost in some ways kind of equates uh, whatever the institution of the Luxor in Las Vegas is with the Hammer Museum, which I, I, <laughs> I liked the idea of that too. In addition to the fact that the room that I'm in, uh, Gallery 5, is also where the Hammer family usually shows their classical paintings with that really right. warm light. And so it seemed like um, a kind of nice push and pull to, you know, to use that color of paint and have it 
seemingly masquerade as if it is kind of like a room at the Met or something, um, you know, where it, it has this function as if it's almost like a museum within a museum. And so you've you've been working on this project since, as you said, 2010, but there's been other instantiations of this project and other ways you've dealt with display. Right. And I'm thinking of the billboard project that was in New Mexico. Can you tell us about that? Sure. As well. Yeah, that project uh, began, I mean, the 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 larger project was uh, this, it was called the Manifest Destiny Billboard Project, and it started in Florida and went along Interstate 10 all the way to Los Angeles. Um, and my state was New Mexico, uh, so I did 10 billboards there. And the project basically consisted of taking uh, the ex- Excavation 2, the project that's uh, currently at the Hammer Museum, and kind of bookending it with this project uh, or a site rather in New Mexico uh, called the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone, which is where uh, this archaeologist Frank Hibben um, basically tried to prove there was some kind of pre-Columbian contact with America by uh, taking two different languages, uh, a version of Cypriotic Greek and a version of ancient Hebrew and merging them and then attempting to what well, at least what uh, experts or other archaeologists believe, it attempted to write the Ten Commandments on the rock. So my appropriation of it for the Billboard project was taking images from the Ten Commandments site uh, in California, where I was, you know, undergoing different versions of uh, trying to perform this excavation there, and using this other quote-unquote Ten Commandments site um, that you know, had no real provenance. And there's been a lot of speculation and projection into what exactly it says or what it means, because at a certain point, there is actually, um, as a somewhat of an antidote to this, uh, there was a point at which um, it became such a kind of issue in New Mexico that they were going to perform a carbon dating test on the rock that he had, uh, that he had carved what they thought the Ten Commandments were into it. And all these proponents of him, uh, or champions of him rather, went out in the middle of the night, the night before they were going to do the test, and they literally pressure washed the rock off so that no tests could be performed. And so today it's just kind of this, um, yeah, this kind of open-ended, you know, container, you know, where it's like you have all these, all these different experts projecting into it. And there, of course, is no real answer other than the fact that, like, everybody, of course, is projecting just their own intentions and desires into what they want people to believe about the site or perpetuating their own theories of like why the rock is there. And that happened with your one of your or several of your billboards, right? Like there was a, a bit of a dust up over that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there was I think they had, I think the billboards had been up for maybe two weeks and uh, the local newspaper in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, interviewed a truck driver who drove by it and um, I'm paraphrasing but basically believed that um, that ISIS had somehow bought up billboard space in New Mexico and were <laughs> attempting to uh, warn or you know threaten the United States by putting m- messages up um, and then it just kind of took on a life of its own where then there were all these other, uh, press people kind of projecting into it. And there was like kind of a lot of dust ups on Facebook and it became like this international press story about like whether ISIS were, you know, going to attack (laughs) through Mexico. (laughs) So, 
Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it wasn't your intention whatsoever, but there was, I mean, this very sort of the billboards, I mean, to me looked very, they did look very sinister right? in this, in this sort of great kind of cinematic way. I mean, a, a billboard, the a billboard sort of size and aspect ratio also, you know, references kind of like a movie screen. Right. Um, and then, you know, these, these giant, these landscape shots that are from a movie, a very famous, you know, um, kind of archetypical, you know, piece of like classic Hollywood cinema. Right. Um, and then another thing I'd, I'd like to hear you talk about would be the, you know, on top of this sort of this language, you know, there's these red, you have these red sort of like proofreaders or like editing marks. Right. I mean, my intention was to hopefully invite people in some ways to think that, you know, people had, cr- you know, climbed up the billboard pole and like, you know, literally tagged it. it or changed it in yeah. some way. And so it would kind of become this pending cipher where it's like, you know, people just kind of coming up and projecting into it and writing whatever they want mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. And I'll also add to that, there was, you know, uh, beyond just the kind of speculation into whether it was ISIS, you know, who who had, you know, perpetuated these uh, messages on, on the billboards. <laughs> um, there was also, you know, there was an incident apparently when one of them was being installed uh, that was at the entrance to a neighborhood right off the interstate. And um, all these people, while it was being installed, the guys were up the billboard pole or whatever. And um, all these people from the neighborhood, like basically had gathered around and were threatening them because they thought it was satanic, which I think, you know, goes to what you were saying about them looking very sinister, like, you know, a Nine Inch Nails album cover or something. Um, but yeah, it was, in and so I guess in, in all obviousness, it just becomes this issue of like, uh, like in a lot of my work, like in the excavation product, where it, it just becomes pure projection into what these things are. They masquerade as if they are the thing itself. And in some ways, they do just kind of become the thing itself. Sure. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, it was definitely not intended to, you know, uh, have a terrorist right. scare at the border. <laughs> but um, but I think it actually, it's kind of the, the perfect end to the project in so many ways, too, just because it... Uh, it 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 exposed you know it's like holding the mirror up to like you know what is it to like live in new mexico for sure yeah and then and coming back to your exhibition at the hammer um and what i was saying earlier i think that i think that's a very interesting sort of facet of of your work in that you know it always it involves like an incredible amount of sort of research and it's very every the way everything's presented is very highly controlled but then there's also this sort of tipping point where you do just let it out of your hands right um and then people's sort of perception of what's going on um, sort of, you know, points to all this, you know, all these kind of ideas about what is real and what is authentic. Um, And yeah, in a lot of ways, I kind of would almost locate the work in like the actual artwork in sort of this sort of reaction that you may not necessarily have complete control over. I completely agree. and, And like we were talking about, I think in your work in some ways too, it's, it's almost like that kind of, conditional belief in things where it's it's no longer um thinking about things in a binary kind of way between uh reality and illusion or you know truth and fiction or anything like that it's it's somewhere in between and in the huge gray expanse between them um and i think in some way at least with yeah these two projects um it is completely just about you know how how people project into it and that kind of experience of um, yeah, having these very, like you say, tightly controlled projects that go on for a long period of time with a lot of research, um, and then just kind of like 
letting it be whatever it is and it's almost kind of like it finishes itself just by its presence you know wherever it's put you are listening to the people on k chung 1630 am i'm ben white and i'm matthew timmons you can find us on itunes search for the people radio check it out all of our shows are there we're hosted by insert blanc press so go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page and now back to our conversation with greg curtis and daniel small um, so I went to Rhode Island School of Design, uh, actually for photography, and um, it was a program that was very much, very rigorous in the sense that it, it was like all about photography with a capital P and going through the kind of rituals to make photographs look like photographs and came from this very kind of old school approach to it, um, which I, at the time I definitely pushed against it and basically spent my entire time there not making any photographs at all, but just like making cameras or sculptures or other things that were almost kind of like self-reflexive about photography in some way. And, and I can only in retrospect, see how that, uh, has led into these products that I'm interested in now where it's like, um, you know, photography as this, you know, um, kind of objective eye that, of, of course is not objective, but, um, but claims that, that, I mean, it, it is that, that language of like culture, it's, it, it is the predominant method and mode of, uh, discerning information and, um, and you know, how, how we set up our own kind of like belief structure around things. Um, and so anyways, uh, it in many ways led me to the projects I'm doing today because of the fact that it, uh, was so much about that kind of, um, I mean, from that education at RISD where it was like street photography aesthetic about like, you know, this is how people are living here. Or this is, you know, these are the objective circumstances. And and of course, like knowing that, you know, um, the, the bigger question today is not like the objectivity of the eye of the camera. It's like what happened before the image was taken and what happens after it, it was taken. And so that was the main thing that I was so interested in while I was there and then how that kind of like followed uh, or in many ways segued into the way in which like I work today, which is still dealing with those same kind of ideas, just in ways that have nothing. To, I mean, I guess that's the thing they do and they don't have to do with photography, um, in a very tangential way they do in a representational way, they have nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think my, yeah, my, my relationship to photography, um, has sort of, is, is very much the same. And I sort of, I came about it in kind of the, the, the sort of the opposite way. Um, originally, um, you know, sort of my interest in, in my, you know, education at CalArts, um, I was mostly really interested and focused in sort of appropriation. Um, and I've always had a very, until very recently, I always, you know, kind of really made a point to not call myself a photographer. And, um, and actually more and more, you know, I, I'm sort of struggling with the fact that I kind of have to sort of call myself a photographer at this point, because I am now, you know, in the last, you know, three or four years, I have actually been shooting pictures with a camera, which was something that was sort of new to me. Um, but coming sort of from this, this appropriation background, I was, I sort of, at a certain point, I would kind of not be able to find the pictures I wanted. Um, and so I ended up more and more having to just create the pictures I wanted. Um, but it also being a very quick kind of in-between process, it was almost just sort of like getting the camera to take the pictures so that as soon as possible, I could get them onto my computer and I could start actually working with them. Um, so, so much of the work I do for me is sort of happening 
within within a computer. It's it's on the screen, um, which is how I consume most pictures anyway. Um, so I have sort of an ambivalent relationship with being this like person, you know, behind a tripod and or a person at a, in a dark room or anything like that. For me, it's much more the artwork is kind of happening in this sort of editing process and also sort of making the decisions um, to take something that is completely ephemeral um, to taking to sort of a collection of data on a computer and then the sort of the the perverse kind of action of then making it an object, which, you know, isn't really necessary. Um, but I feel like it slows down, um, it slows down our perception of those images because we so readily and easily just sort of scroll through and um, see pictures without referent or without context. Um, and you could look at something that was just shot by a completely de-skilled person or something that was shot by an incredible technician right next to each other. Um, and the sort of the cues aren't necessarily there, uh, what's coming from what. Uh, so I find that putting them in an exhibition context um, brings, and putting bodies in that room um, highlights the sort of ideological kind of process that's happening um, in art in the way both pictures are made and also consumed. I agree. I, I think that um, I would just add to that, too, that it seems like like your experience, for instance, of seeing or, or like almost all people's experience of uh, all images you consume being on a screen in this kind of immaterial um, limbo. I think it's really interesting because, of course, uh, it leads to, to the other big issue of like, um, you know, looking ahead even 10, you know, 20 years from now, where it's like all the images that, you know, we have this kind of archival impulse to, you know, to shoot everything and document every single moment um, and then like store them on, you know, drives that like, you know, in 10 or 20 years, like those will be rendered basically uh, unusable. Mm -hmm. And so it actually leads to all this information loss and like, you know, the kind of loss of history or culture as much as it kind of champions it in a way where it's like um, upholding that I that ideology actually of, you know, thinking that like, you know, we're saving, saving these moments, you know, and it's a very kind of romanticized vision of like, you know, whatever, walking around with smartphones and documenting everything or only only seeing things on a screen for a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I guess also like in the exhibition format, it's like, you know, only just having these very kind of punctuated moments. And even like in your show, it, it kind of mimics or mimes that in some way where it's like having these punctuated moments um, where, yeah, the, the you actually have an image, even if it's the, you know, the kind of immaterial image of what is going on inside of a camera. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think there's something very interesting. I mean, also within your work, you know, you you make you make the decision and you've also gone through great lengths um, and a lot of work in order to actually acquire these objects and actually display the objects. Um, whereas you could, you know, theoretically just sort of get permission to just photograph the objects, right. you know, and then you wouldn't even necessarily have to print those objects. You could make a website that just has, where one could just scroll through photographs, you know, of the objects. But I think there's something very important in actually acquiring um, and exhibiting the objects themselves. Um, and in spite of the sort of like promise of digital photography uh, to sort of, that it is like this sort of timeless archived thing, you know, any of us, all of us of a, you know, of a certain age who have, you know, um, been making images for a while or, you know, since the turn of the century, we've seen how, you know, as you said before, we've seen how 
hard drives we have or, you know, formats we have, you know, become obsolete. Right. So in spite of that sort of promise of, of digital photography um, to be sort of like to hold up l- like longer than the actual objects seems a little bit suspect. And I feel sort of that when I feel that I still feel that the objects themselves are actually are, are going to out- outlast it. I, I completely agree because I think it, it and that's a good point about, you know, um, like, for instance, yeah, the 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 literal objects uh, that uphold the historical record or are the things that, you know, we supposedly write, you know, write history or write culture from. And I, I completely agree also with what you were saying, though, too, about how um, those, you know, these objects will almost inevitably outlast um, whatever, you know, whatever kind of formats we have for how those, how the images of these objects or images of times or you know, place or whatever um, would, you know, w- which will inevitably fail and lead to uh, the loss of that instead of, um, you know, becoming the kind of record I think that we want it to become. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a, with the objects at the Hammer show uh, made in LA, it's like there is when there's ideologies that are addressing those objects as much as ideologies that address the, the image. Right. So I think it, se- it seems like part of what you're doing in that show is putting, like you said, putting these three different things together to show the different kind of uh, contingent uh, interpretations, right? Exactly. And, and as another kind of layer mediation to like the artifacts that are at the Hammer Show, because they are plaster and they've been exposed to the elements for so long, they, they take on a whole other level of like authenticity or legitimize themselves in a way because they've just been sandblasted for the last like hundred years. So they look like tablets that look like there's writing on them or something. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I mean, but, but in that particular case, it is, I mean, whatever, it becomes a kind of uncanny experience because it's like on one level, you know, that it's fake you, or you know, that it, it has a kind of dubious provenance, but yet, you know, the way that it, um, the way the, the way that it's both shown and the way that in its actual affect of representation tell you something completely different and it, it just becomes something that uh, doesn't masquerade in, anymore it just it, it is that it is the thing which sounds a lot like a description of of your solo show at Monta Vista like that stri- like that stripping away of like trying to make the thing not mask itself as a photograph mm-hmm. but still maybe that points to other mediative aspects like the gallery or the the way it's arranged or does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely i mean in a way i also sort of see the the photographs in that show as um as almost being sort of in a way representations of photographs or in a way sort of sculptures of photographs um because again you know with digital images there's no need to there's there's no direct need to print them or frame them. Um, so in making those decisions, and then of course the size that they are, the you know, the way they're framed, those are all decisions that one you know sort of has to make. Um, so in sort of like creating that, it is sort of like creating objects. Just to track back to what Ben was saying, though, I um, it's almost like yeah, your photographs at uh, Monte Vista, they're, it's almost as if they're kind of ghosts or phantoms of a photograph, you mm-hmm. know. Um, they're, they're kind of stand-ins in yeah. some way. And, uh, and, and also just because they're, they're dealing with objective materiality that there is no objectivity to, because you're not photographing anything. You're just photographing the, you know, the, the kind of 
mechanism of how light hits hits a lens. Right. Right. Yeah, and I find that sort of that dialogue that's sort of created is is in a way almost a sort of sculptural dialogue um, that's maybe more in line with um, something like minimalism, right? Where you know it is really very much about the object in the room and the body in the room and the relationships between those three things. I think a common thread within our work, even though it's very uh, you know, just in, in sort of looking at it, it's our work and our practices are very disparate. Um, I think the common, the common thing that runs through it is for both of us, our interests sort of in ideal, in ideology. Um, right. Yeah. And also that neither of us uh, fancy ourselves sort of technical practitioners, um, but more just that we're sort of engaging larger cultural ideas in the way that um, the way that culture, you know, informs perception. I, I, I think both of us deal with it in, in a way it's almost like ideology embodied, you know, right. in, in, in the sense that it's like um, we, we're both dealing with things almost at a kind of one-to-one scale of like mm-hmm. what, you know, in, in the world in a certain sense. And so whatever that is, you know, it's like the ideology of appropriation to some degree, but it's like, it's, it's also like um, an ideology uh, that, that just basically deals with, um yeah, with 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 the kind of real mechanisms of like how things unfold in the world, in in instead of um, instead of I guess being more reflexive about it mm-hmm. in some way, or or only just kind of um, yeah, like like doing what photography does best, which is it just it represents a, a lot but says nothing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think the other. I think another sort of crucial part for both of us um, is sort of um, sort of denaturalizing these processes. Um, it's sort of all, like sort of mimicking them, um, restaging them in a way, but also sort of making them sort of problematic. And it's you know I think it's about sort of these processes are very smooth when one you know perceives a photograph or when one perceives <clears throat> historical relics. Um, but but as we all know, you know, those things aren't natural, like those things are created. <clears throat> those things are socially and ideologically informed. Um, so in sort of restaging the, that sort of ideological process that happens for people, um, but making it a problem, I think we put, a, I think both of us are sort of generous with our viewers in terms of um, allowing them to sort of like question exactly what's going on. I think it's, a, it, it's also almost like what, um we're both interested in, in, uh, to different degrees is that, you know, history is riddled with these holes and gaps, but it's like, I think our practice, it focuses on those, on those, you know, the missing bits as much as it focuses on all of the ideologically driven things that have come up around, you know, or, or been driven by photography or culture, you know, image making, um, and chooses to kind of, you know, pick on those things in particular, where it's like, it's, it's just a kind of abyss between things. Um, as I mean, in, in a very literal sense, I guess, Absolutely. I guess with, with your show at Monta Vista. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that kind of, that sort of boils it down really well that it's about, it's less about the actual objects or actual images and much more about the process. It's much more about the space in between. Well, Greg Curtis and Daniel Small, thanks for being on The People. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. 
and I'm Ben White. You can find The People on iTunes by searching for The People Radio on the iTunes store. Look for us there, and if you have the time, please subscribe to the show, rate the show, and leave us a review. We're also hosted by Insert Blanc Press, and if you go to Insert Blanc Press and click on The People at the top of the page, you can find an archive of all of our past shows as well. You can also find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. And we're on Facebook, so you could go to our Facebook page, find out more about the artists we've interviewed, and you could even like us on Facebook. Yeah, like us. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller, and now we're going to go out with a song by L.A. band Forget-Me-Nots from their new album, Whoosh, released on cassette by Wiener Records on July 31st, 2016. To find out more about the band and their music, uh, you can go to their site, uh, and that's forget me Knots. Dot bandcamp.com and that's forget me nots forget me in a uts nots and the name of the track we're going to hear is sand buckets challenge yeah i think it worked